Grand Shakespeare Festival's Shakespeare Playground presents Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. At Island Shakespeare Festival, our mission is to provide accessible classical theater realized for a contemporary audience. Tales from the Vomitorium is presented with special permission from Scott Kaiser and is made possible, in part, by support from our sponsors, the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, and Whidbey Telecom. Learn more at islandshakespearefest.org. Today, Eric Bermudez reads Ecdysiast by Scott Kaiser. Following the story, Eric will share his response. Then, Scott and I will discuss Scott's inspiration for the story, as well as his experience with the play from which the story is derived. We hope you enjoy. Ecdysiast by Scott Kaiser Read by Eric Bermudez Do you know who that is? asked Trevor, timidly. He was waiting backstage left for his entrance during an epic technical rehearsal. Yeah, that's Chrissy. She's in my undergrad acting class, dude, said Darius. If I wasn't teaching her, I'd be fucking her. Yeah, said Trevor, rolling his eyes. That rule about not fucking your students is so rude. Rude is like my middle name, though, you know, (laughs) said Darius, laughing way too loudly. Is she seeing someone? continued Trevor. I don't know, but who cares? Darius quipped. Let me introduce you to her, man. If I can't tap that, you definitely should. Trevor was on the rebound after a serious relationship of many years had unraveled. He had just broken up with a woman he thought he would marry, and he was still trying to stitch up the gaping wounds of that relationship. He wanted to grow a new, tougher skin about women, to fool around more and have some fun. He tended to get serious about relationships too soon, a habit he was hoping to break. Chrissy, this is Trevor, said Darius, bringing them together at the prop table. Trev's an actor in the MFA. And Trev, this is Chris. Hi, said Chrissy, giving Trev the once-over in the deep blue backstage light. He's been drooling over you for weeks, Chris, said Darius. So I figured, shit, I guess I better introduce him to you. Gee, thanks, pal, said Trevor. That's a great intro. No, it's okay, said Chrissy. I saw you eyeing me over there. Why don't you come over and say hi? I've been standing here in the dark for four hours doing nothing. I don't know, replied Trevor. I guess I just assumed you didn't want some rando bothering you. You're not some rando, she said with a wink in her voice. Are you? Chrissy was an aspiring young actress in the B.A., Desperate to get into an MFA program. But on this show, she was doing penance for the sin of being a declared theater major. That is, she was on the prop crew for a required class in production. They stood backstage and spoke until it was time for a dinner break. So, you want to hang out sometime? Isn't that what we're doing? No, I mean, outside the theater, like somewhere other than the stage left prop table? Sure. Okay. Let's go get dinner. Great. Where do you like to eat on the Ave? After seeing Chrissy for only a month, Trevor was smitten. 
She was beautiful, with the eyes and nose of a lioness, and a full-bodied laugh that made you feel as if you were the funniest person in the world. She wasn't particularly bright, not the way his ex-girlfriend had been, but she had a sweet disposition. Chris dressed in a trashy sort of way, and Trev was always a little embarrassed to be out with her in public. But in private, she was a wonderful date. Best of all, she was terrific in bed. Agile, uninhibited, responsive, indefatigable. Although he knew it was probably too soon to offer a nice gift, Trev gave Chris a silver bracelet to show his affection for her. It was a modest gift, but it was way out of Trevor's price range and Chris knew it. So she vowed to never take it off. Let's go dancing tonight, Chris, Trevor suggested one day. I can't tonight, Trev, Chris protested. I have to work. Why do you have to work? You know I have to work at least a couple nights a week to pay for school. So where do you work again? I told you, I work at a club in the south end of town right near the airport. What kind of job pays for school in just a couple of nights a week? The salary sucks, but the tips are excellent. Trev figured she was a waitress in an exclusive club, so he checked online for places near the airport, and there was only one anywhere near it. It was a club called the Trojan Horse. As a surprise, Trevor drove down to the club to drop in on Chris at work. Walking through the front door, he could see the Trojan Horse was not at all what he was expecting. There was loud music brightly colored lights, bouncers, and a steep cover charge to get in. It was not a restaurant, but a strip club, with a large circular bar with mounted poles that served as a stage for topless and bottomless dancers. And there, on the bar, writhing against a pole, was Chrissy. She was head to toe naked, except for the silver bracelet he gave her. He walked over to the bar and got her attention. Chrissy! he shouted over the thumping beat of the large speakers. "'What are you doing here?' demanded Chrissy, without missing a beat, pretending that Trev was a customer so that she wouldn't be fired. "'I wanted to see you,' said Trevor sheepishly. "'Why didn't you tell me you were coming? Why didn't you tell me you're a stripper?' "'Sorry, you don't get to judge me. I do this job to survive, to put a roof over my head and get myself through school, so—, so- Then why weren't you honest with me? Asked Trevor, cutting her off. Enraged, Chris hopped off the bar and walked briskly towards the glitzy curtains leading backstage. Don't walk away, shouted Trev, grabbing her by the arm. Within seconds, the bouncers were on him. Two enormous men who looked as if they had once been linemen for the Minnesota Vikings. They grabbed him by both arms and dragged him to a side door well out of public view. Then they tossed him out on his ass, leaving him to bleed on the pavement. That was Ecdiziest, read by Eric Bermudez, recording from his apartment in Washington Heights in Manhattan. We can't wait to welcome Eric to our stage as soon as we're able to. In the meantime, we're thrilled to bring his voice to you with this story. Here are a few thoughts he had about it. I had a lot of fun reading this story. One of the first things that stood out to me was that this story opens during a tech rehearsal, and not just any tech rehearsal, but one in an academic setting, which I think is pretty specific. Uh, It took me back to 
times in my life where I was in this situation and I found my, my mind wandering, thinking about life choices, an ex of mine, um, the current crush I have. And so I was able to put myself in Trevor's position, you know, at the top of the story and kind of understand that environment really well. And as an actor in those situations, you know, you're not really supposed to talk much unless you're saying your lines or answering a question directly about the work. So there's some nice tension and conflict that is established just with this environment. And so I think it's a nice way to establish the initial connection between Trevor and Chrissy, because there's obviously some desire um, for that. You know, you build yourself up in those kinds of situations. And I really enjoyed, (laughs) I enjoyed seeing Trevor be unsuccessful at breaking these habits that he had with relationships. But even more so what, what stood out to me was, you know, I don't think Trevor was ever really ready to accept Chrissy for who she is. You know, he does these gestures and and does this whole lover boy shtick, but like, you know, the way he felt about the way she dresses and, and the focus on her skill in bed, you know, didn't really seem like his head was in the right place um, to respect her for who she is. You know, I think he might have been convincing himself that this rebound was more than he thought. And, you know, that ultimately leads to the the surprise that Chrissy is in fact a stripper, which I loved and, you know, was shocking for me, but also, you know, was unfortunate because I think this whole story shows that communication is key in any relationship. And, you know, Trevor didn't allow himself to communicate his feelings and understand who Chrissy really was. And, you know, Chrissy has this bracelet on when he finds her and like, you know, that's got to mean something, but obviously he can't see past the fact that she's a stripper and it, you know, it, it leads to his ass being thrown out of the club and sitting on the pavement. And, you know, hopefully that's a lesson for him. Um, you know, he has to have his head in the right place with these relationships and really like, you know, accept who he's, he's with. And, you know, and also respect the boundaries, um, that maybe she didn't want to share that as early as she did, you know? So I, I connected a lot to all that, um, just because, you know, things get tricky, you know, post after a breakup and sometimes you're not as ready as you think you are for another relationship, or sometimes you maybe aren't seeking out the right things, um, and I think, you know, <laughs> Trevor hopefully learned a lesson in the end. And, and you know, Chrissy, I think, <laughs> was chilling. And she didn't really deserve him to step over the boundaries that she clearly wasn't ready to, you know, pass. Um, as far as Troilus and Cressida goes, which is the source material for the story, I personally don't have a lot of... Um, I, I don't have any experience working on this play. Um, but I did really enjoy the elements that were brought into it, you know, with the, the character names and, 
even just the lover boy, the timeless lover boy energy that Troilus and Trevor share, um, all the way up to the club being named the Trojan horse. Um, you know, I thought it, it was nice to have those elements cause it keeps Shakespeare's work alive in this really contemporary, um, story. And yeah, I just overall thought the story was a cool examination of young love or lust and how that can be really messy. The Goosefoot Community Fund. Goosefoot works together with the South Whidbey community to create essential solutions. We address community needs, connect neighbors, grow local businesses, and preserve great places. Learn more at goosefoot.org. Thank you so much for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. Scott is with us today to discuss Ecdysiast, which I had to practice saying, um, which you just heard read by Eric Bermudez. Hi, Scott. Welcome back. Hi, Alina. Ecdysiast. Ecdysiast. What does it mean? Well, it, it means an exotic dancer or a, a stripper. Ah, great. Cool. That uh, that makes sense, <laughs> given the story. Um, I wonder if you can tell us uh, first um, what your inspiration for this story was. Does this one come from real life? You don't actually have to say if it does. It, it does come from real life. It doesn't come from my experience, but uh, I have to say that I um, I did know um, when I was in grad school. I did know um, of undergrads who, at the time. Um, uh, and of course, this is pre-internet at the time, were using, um, were dancing in strip clubs in order to pay their tuition. Um, and although this may sound really, really strange, you actually only have to go to modern instance where you, there are many, many undergraduates um, who are currently paying their tuitions um, by uh, by doing uh uh, you know, pornographic chats online. So it, it's actually not that, um, I think, shocking or different from what we're experiencing now. At the time, it was a very, it was a high paying job. You could make a lot of money very quickly. Um, I'm not saying that I approve or disapprove, but just that uh, um, I didn't make it up uh, and that I was aware at the time that uh, some of the undergraduates that, uh, that, uh, that I was encountering in, uh, in classes and in production were in fact getting through school by working in clubs for sure. I mean, super lucrative and great. Find a way to pay for school. Cool. I have a lot of loans. So, <laughs> I mean, if anyone can can support themselves through college, I mean, more power to you. So this is based on uh, circumstances in Troilus and Cressida. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, the relationship between this story and that play. Well, of course, um, the the story in terms of uh, that uh, Cressida is sold off to the uh, the Greeks is traded off, and uh, in order to survive in the Greek camp, she has to uh, you know take on a new lover. Uh, it's actually a very frightening scene in. Uh, Troilus and Cressida, where Cressida arrives among the Greeks, she's in their camp, and the men are essentially, you know, pawing at her and and competing for her attention. Uh, it, it's quite frightening. Uh, be, uh, this this young 
um, woman surrounded by Greek soldiers and uh, what they put her through. It's um, it's it's a really quite a harrowing scene in that play. Um, so the inspiration here is uh, uh, Cressida has to uh, take up a new lover in order to survive, and uh, that got me thinking about you know what would. Uh, you know, what would the equivalent be in my life? And I started to think about these undergraduates who had uh, to um, work in strip clubs in order to, to make ends meet. And that led me to this idea that, uh, that uh, Trevor, um, her new boyfriend, doesn't really get that and she doesn't disclose it, has to find it out the hard way. And, uh, and uh, that's an equivalent to the, the scene in Troilus and Cressida where Troilus sneaks into the Greek camp and sees uh, Cressida um, uh, with, a, with another man. Right. Well, and I, in the play, it's so sad because you think that they really have fallen in love and there's like such a, they have such a beautiful love story towards the beginning of the play. And then this, there's like no, she doesn't have any opportunity to have her own voice about it. And it's so sad and upsetting. And same thing in the story. Like this young woman is, has made this choice and is doing legal work that is sex work, but it is legal work. And she's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And if she's feeling empowered and she's making her money, then like, great. And it's really sad that there's no, there's such a stigma and, she can't celebrate her work and and may feel that she has to hide it from him or not not fully tell him or ha- she has to trust him more before she can tell him or whatever you know there's so many things to read into why she hasn't said right off the bat hey this is where i work and this is what the job is i think that was very much in my mind when i wrote the um the story is as you say the stigma attached to uh to you know stripping in a club and uh, you know her not wanting that to be part of her student identity, and and uh, it's a it's a new relationship. Uh, so uh, you know, I you know if, if I were to write a full story, I might go into what's going on in Chrissy's head of why she doesn't say it immediately. Um, but you're right, there's a, there's a stigma attached um, to it, and uh, she's being private about it. So. Uh, that that is definitely part of the story uh, that he finds out uh, with before she can say anything, um, and uh, it, it's sad, yeah. And as you say, it's uh, one of the things that uh, Charles and Cressida is about is, of course, how Cressida is objectified. She's literally traded <laughs> uh, for a, for a for a prisoner. Um, uh, completely objectified and the way Pandarus uh, deals with her um, as if she were a, a prize. And even the fact that uh, you know, Troilus sees her from afar, doesn't really know her, but falls in love with her without even knowing her. So objectification of this, this um, young woman is very much part of the play anyway. And uh, I've tried to replicate that in the story as much as I can. I think that comes across. <laughs> pretty clearly. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about some of the the triumphs and challenges of working on Troilus and Cressida. I know the festival did it in, oh, 20, I don't know, 12 or 13. When was that? Yeah, they did kind of a Persian version. I can't remember. It was definitely early 2010s. Um, it was in New Theater, and it was a kind of a Persian version. It was a, a, maybe a rock war version, I think, is what it was, if I remember correctly now. Yeah, I watched it a lot. That was a 
season of a lot of ushering for me. So <laughs> I saw that one a lot of times. Yeah, it's it's a really complicated, confusing, dense play. And uh, I think one of the failings of that particular production was it was so heavily doubled and tripled that it became very hard, I think, to follow the characters. Um, There's a lot of names. There's a lot. It's, you know, the Trojan War, lots and lots and lots of names and characters and characters in one scene only. And then they go away. Yeah, it's it, it that it was tough to follow. It's really tough. And, you know, tracking you know, Greeks and Trojans and who's in which army, the names are very hard to remember and associate with. And, you know, you've got an actor who's a Greek in one scene and then he comes back as a Trojan soldier in the next and then he comes back again as the Greek. I mean, the doubling makes it very, very challenging to follow. To, to, to follow. It, the language is incredibly dense. It's, it is a really, really challenging script. And uh, um, some directors try to strip it down in order to make it more accessible, but it is some of the most challenging language in the canon and it's also one of the most difficult styles to play because it's the trojan war but it's listed as a comedy even though it ends in a battle and people die and uh um you know how is this a comedy um uh Troilus and Cressida don't end up together so how is that a comedy um but it uh, so it it is a lot of real issues with the play and and uh it's i've not seen in my mind a very a particularly successful production i think the closest that i've ever seen to success was in uh, a production i worked on in 2001 um that was directed by Ken Albers in the outdoor space uh it was big it was sprawling it was a lot of characters a lot of attention was paid to costuming to make sure we didn't get lost about which camp we were in um, and, uh, and also I have to say Ken Albers did a massive, deep rewrite of the ending, um, to make sure that the, it was clear what was going on in the battles and what was going on. Um, so one of the ways he solved the problem was, it was a very heavy rewrite, which most people didn't notice because they don't know the play well enough to know that the ending would be rewritten. Um, so that, that, that I think was a very, um, I think that was a very successful production in a lot of ways. Um, and Ken Albert said, I thought that did a very good job. That was, um, let's see, Kevin Kennerly, I think was the Troilus and, uh, an actress named Tyler Layton, I believe was the, uh, was the Cressida, um, but uh, as I say, it, it is. Uh, I have. Um, I have. It, it's a. It's one of the most challenging plays to produce in my mind. Well, and we don't see it very often. I mean, I, aside from at the festival, I. That's the only time I've seen it. I don't know how recently it's happened in Seattle, but. Not really a crowd pleaser. I mean, I. I don't know. You know, for a theater that needs to sell tickets, uh, I think it's a real tough sell. I think there's a lot in it that's pretty great, though. There's a lot of wonderful stuff in it. There is. And and I'm not saying we shouldn't produce it. Of course, we should <laughs> keep trying and attempting to produce it. Absolutely. Um, but it is, it is uh, as I say, it is it's top to bottom full of challenges. What do you think? How would you suggest leaning into the comedy of it? Where do you find the comedy? Well, the comedy is 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 in the language, um, and uh, because you've got uh, you know the characters are very distinctly drawn. When you first read it, you go, "My gosh, what what is happening?" But you know, the more you are aware of it, you you start to see you know where the 
the narcissists are and where the where um where the intellectuals are and where the wily characters are and where the stupid characters are like ajax or the smart characters ulysses i mean they are very very well drawn the characters have very very different um and distinct ways of speaking ways of being ways of talking about the trojan war um so you really got to find very dis- actors who are, understand the distinctions between these characters and really lean into that but but they also have to have incredible language skill because in order to illuminate those character traits through language you have to be an extremely skilled actor the the, the rhetorical devices uh, from speech to speech or speech are dense, they're convoluted, they're twisted. Um, and uh, these speeches go on for, uh, for you know, 40, 50, 60, 100 lines. Um, the long arc of these speeches requires an enormous amount of intelligence and ability. Um, and uh, so casting is extremely important. Uh, it's why when you, if you see it in a college production, um, it's, it's a very high bar. Um, the skill level required is, is extremely, extremely high. Yeah, it's a, I really, there's so much of this play that I really like. And one of my, I love the, you know, the Cressida monologue, Stop My Mouth one. is so funny. <laughs> there's a lot in the early scenes that I think is really hilarious. And um, it just takes this turn that's like, oh, no. The, the Pandora scenes are fun. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, when there's some sweet uh, scene after Charles and Cressida wake up the next morning and and um, and he's he's teasing her and the dialogue gets kind of bawdy. And I, I think Cressida's monologue, um, you know, Stop My Mouth, that it's lovely because it, it sees it really reveals her um, position in society that she's been trying to get the man to make the first move because that's his job. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that there's just some, some real cultural specificity there that, uh, you know, I can't make the first move because I'm the woman. It's not my place to make the first move, but I've been waiting for you to make the first move, you idiot. Why haven't you? Um, it's, uh, it's, I, I think that that monologue holds up really beautifully. Oh, I do too. I, yeah, I love it. Um, and I think that the the love with the war backdrop, too, is, you know, there's something really palpable about that and trying to find this first joy in in that space of uncertainty and fear and peril is really courageous, <laughs> too. It, it is. Uh, you know, another, another thought about the play is, you know, when I was growing up and I learned about the Trojan War, it was like, 10 years of war? 10 years? I mean, I could not get my head around it as a kid. And of course, now as adults, when we think about how long we've been in Afghanistan, how long we've been fighting there, uh, much longer than 10 years, it's, it's unfortunately, it's much easier to conceive of being dug in for a full decade or more. Uh, it's a sad truth, but uh, uh, somehow the idea of the Trojan War um, is is far more conceivable now than it than it was before we got ourselves entangled in in all of that mess in, in the Middle East. Yeah, well, and I think that was so that was a really clear, interesting choice. I thought for the production and the Thomas. Yes. Um, 
hard to track and hard to <laughs> the I remember the costumes being pretty similar of of both sides as well and that made it really hard too because I wasn't sure when we were in a different army camp but isn't that that, that is such so that, such the truth that if you're going to double that heavily um the costumes have got to be you know red team blue team you know right. it's got to be you've got to be so clear in a heavily doubled show like that you know what team we're looking at and with a with the henry's like henry five uh that are heavily doubled it's like yeah i literally red team you know the french are in blue and the english are in red and <laughs> that's you know just make it easy well just so they don't confuse themselves like it's just practical <laughs> you know yeah yeah well awesome thank you so much scott i look forward to talking to you again next week thanks alina bye thank you for listening to tales from the vomitorium 38 short stories by scott kaiser sound design and composition by orion michael schwang This episode was sponsored in part by the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, Whidbey Telecom, and by our listeners. Support us and learn more at islandshakespearefest.org.